You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Be very careful to whom you entrust your data and what kind of information are you sharing and how. Because if someone asks you to email your confidential information or a picture of the ID, it can be misused very easily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Martin Rehack, CEO and founder at Resistant AI, is talking about both deep and shallow fakes. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we have a bit of Mm -hmm. follow-up. I will uh, read it here. It's from a a listener named Joe who uh, writes in and says, Joe's statement about not using legacy OSs is unfortunately not an option for many of us. My former employee was a moderately large mechanical contractor, and our manufacturing facility had a number of older machines running legacy OSs. Sheet metal laser cutters running XP, a few lathes running DOS still. Mm-hmm. Cost to upgrade these was in the five to six zero range. Right. And the management felt that while it was still working, why pay to upgrade versus buying a newer machine? Secure network to us, therefore, meant no network essentially, air gapped, right. no network connections other than between the onboard systems for that specific machine, loaders versus cutters. And all files were sneaker-netted via managed USB sticks. Or, in the case of the lathe, printouts that got entered via the keypad. Right. Old school. Have you, ever seen, have you ever seen a lathe keypad, Dave? I don't believe I have, no. I, you know, in high school, I worked in a machine shop, and we had uh, a Hitachi lathe. I don't know what the operating system on it was. Huh. But, I, I mean, watching the machinist... Enter. The, he was trying to explaining to me how it worked. Yeah, uh, you know, you just have to select a tool, and then because it's a lathe, you're you're working pretty much linearly in two directions. It's not really a three D kind of thing. Yeah. Um. But it was, or at least that's the way I remember. I may be wrong. Somebody's probably going to write and say, <laughs> "Joe, you're you're not a machinist." I'm. Uh, yeah, I never was. Uh, but it, I mean, but it was tedious watching watching this guy program this thing directly on the machine. Right, right. Joe continues and says, I left before the last CMMC audit, so I don't know if it was good enough, but my old team hasn't been complaining about that specifically lately, so I'm guessing it was good enough. That or the new management's other initiatives are just bigger pains in their sides. <laughs> right. So here's this is kind of my point with this. You know, yeah. you have these you have these old legacy systems, and he's right. the The cost to upgrade them is enormous. Right. Um. And you know, we talk about if it, I think we were talking the the sense we were using if it's if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right? Yeah. Right. Uh, well, if I can operate this thing without having to connect it to a network, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a problem with with having an XP machine sitting alone running a lathe or or, or a sheet metal cutter as long as it's not networked anything. But right, right. The, the moment you plug that thing into into any other network, the moment somebody else finds it, they're going in. Yeah. Uh, so keep it off the internet. Uh, of course, you don't work there anymore, Joe. So uh, that's not your problem, really. But right, right. which is good. But, yeah, I mean, just make sure these things never get connected to the Internet. And they were probably never engineered to connect to the Internet. When was the last time a machine was running DOS? 
Uh, mm. It's been decades mm-hmm. before people started envisioning these kind of things. Uh, so it's it's it, this is what I would call operational technology, and it needs to be isolated. Yeah, and it sounds like they're doing it fine. And he's right; the cost to upgrade it is prohibitive. Yeah, and I think he brings up a good point too, which is that you know it's easy for folks on the security side to say. Uh, you know, patch your systems. Right, don't right. run outdated OSs. But you know, meanwhile, here in the real world, uh, it's yeah, not exactly. always easy and to do that. And so you need to be empathetic was, about that. That's what I was trying to say. Actually, is, yeah. You know, the, the manufacturer goes, "Well, just put it on a secure network," and there is no such thing as a secure network. And the only option is just to air gap it. Yeah. Uh, and not putting a, not put it on any network, mm-hmm. uh, which works because you can get the files off it. And we see this in hospitals too, with like twenty year old MRI machines. There's nothing wrong with the MRI machine except for the fact that it's running Windows XP. So just don't connect it to the internet. Yeah. I had a friend who, this was years ago, but uh, he was making a pretty a pretty penny uh, finding and refurbing old Apple II Pluses because there was some legacy machine that the Postal Service used that was still, <laughs> still running an Apple II Plus. still running on Apple II Pluses, right. And, and he was an old Apple guy from, from, you know, the old days. So he had the skills to be able to you know, know whether one of these machines was running properly and was refurbed and to handle all of this stuff. But, you know, you never know how far back this stuff goes. Every now and then you hear about some system, you know, in a it's in a barn somewhere that's right. still running on an old TRS-80 that's running the milking machines See, or something. This, this is a great example of 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 a uh, of kind of the same problem we're talking about. This is the Postal Service running a uh, an operational technology on a consumer-based machine, right. a consumer operating system, which is what all these things are doing, you know, with with uh, with Windows XP boxes or DOS boxes. Those are consumer-level operating systems. Yeah. Uh, but to go with something like a real-time operating system or with a, uh, like IBM, it's going to be much more expensive to do that. Sure. Even though you'll get the longer-term support from a company like IBM than you will from a company like Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's, just going to price you out of the market because the other guy is going to go with Microsoft and put a $100 OS and a, and, a, and a $500 machine on it. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, a point well made, and mm-hmm. we appreciate Joe writing in with his insights. Uh, of course, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's jump into our stories this week. I actually have two stories, uh-huh. uh, both a, a quicker one. The first one is just a quick reminder. Uh, I actually got an email. This is from uh, Brian Frosch, who is our attorney general here in Maryland. Yes. And they sent out a consumer alert warning people to um, be aware that after Hurricane Ian, and, and indeed anytime there's a, a natural disaster weather event like this, the market tends to get and I'm no pun intended, flooded mm-hmm. with damaged cars, cars ah. that were marinating in the water down there for who knows how long, right? Right. And those, those uh, cars get bought at salvage auctions, and there are folks who rebuild them and refurb them, but the title on them should be marked as being a salvage or a total loss. But there, of course, there are dishonest people out there who kind of launder the title, hide the damage, and then offer those vehicles for sale. So, I imagine that if you move them from one state to another, it becomes much easier to do that. Probably. Yeah, right. probably. So, uh, you know, it's just a warning to be on the alert of that. Uh, obvious things like musty odors and, you know, th- those sorts of things. But it's just a good reminder that uh, if you, and also because um, the used car market is still pretty tight right now. And, right. You know, prices are high. And so to have a bunch of cars 
hit the market. Just you know, buyer beware. Right. As an aside, I'll be doing a uh, presentation with the Cash Campaign of Maryland and uh, Attorney General Brian Frosch on Thursday, the day before this podcast comes out. But you'll still be able to see the uh, st- see the recording of the meeting on the Cash Campaign of Maryland's website. Oh, okay. So, Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. Uh, my main story, though, comes from the folks over at Gizmodo. This is uh, written by Passant Raby. And uh, <laughs> I'll just read the title. It's okay. an imposter claiming to be an astronaut— wooed a Japanese woman into paying for a return ticket to Earth. We had this as a catch of the day when it first started being a scam. (laughs) And at the time we said, we see, this seems ridiculous to us, but it doesn't to somebody else. Yeah. Well, uh, this is a a 65-year-old woman in Japan Mm -hmm. paid uh, the equivalent of about $30,000 in this online scam uh, the scammer claimed to be a Russian astronaut. So I suppose that would be a cosmonaut. Cosmonaut, uh, right. Who was looking for a ticket back to Earth. Uh, and it's a standard, it's the classic story. This person uh, reached out to this poor woman, uh, started a conversation, which led to an online romance. Right, very quickly into uh, lovey-dovey things. Right, and then started asking for money, uh, but claimed that in order to get home <laughs> where he he promised a, a, a relationship, uh, he needed money to pay for his trip home. And, of right. course, that's not how any of this works. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, the, the, you, if you're up on the ISS, yeah. uh, return service is guaranteed. Yes, yeah. so. <laughs> it's a, one way or another. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, this article points out that uh, space agencies like NASA pay about 50 to $55 million to get its astronauts up to the ISS, and that price does include a return trip back to Earth. Yes. So uh, it's it's funny to talk about. It's it's It sounds funny. It is kind of funny in its absurdity, but it's not funny to the poor woman who's out $30,000. Yeah, that's the and, tragedy here. Yeah, and also has, a, I suspect, a broken heart about this too. Sure. Uh, she really thought that, uh, you know, I suspect this was uh, the man of her dreams. Who, who wouldn't want to, uh, to have a relationship with an astronaut, right? It just doesn't get much better than that, I would think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty glamorous, I yeah, would say. That's right. That's right. So we'll have a link to the story in the show notes. Uh, sad story, but again, you know, worth uh, spreading the, the word about that as ridiculous as some of these things sound, people are out there falling for them. They're going so. to work. Yeah, right. they're going to work. And this, in this case, this one did. All right, Joe, that's what I have for us this week. What do you have for us? Dave, I also have two stories. My first story comes from Lauren Schwentker at KY3, uh, which is, uh, let me get the call letters up here. It's KYTV. Guess which state? Well, it's a K, so it has to be west of the Mississippi, uh, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> it, KYTV, KY3, I would have guessed Kentucky, but that's uh, uh-huh. not west of the Mississippi. But, uh, okay. but you're right. It is from, uh, from Missouri, Springfield, Missouri. Okay. But I picked this one because I'm pretty sure I saw something like this recently right here in Baltimore. Oh. Yep. Uh, it is Springfield police warned drivers of potential funeral scam. And potential is in quotes on this. Hmm. But there is a person standing, and they have pictures of it, uh, a person standing in the street wearing a, a day-glow green vest with the re- reflective strips on it. Uh-huh. And they are walking with a sign that says funeral for this person and has a picture. You can't really see on the on the 
on the picture here, but they also have a little bucket that you're using to collect coins or change. Oh. So they're essentially panhandling allegedly for a uh, a funeral for someone who has passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's kind of like the in-person version of the uh, the GoFundMe scam, mm-hmm. where somebody dies and immediately scammers go out and they set up uh, fake GoFundMe pages, just take the money and run, and the family never benefits from it. Right. I doubt the family of this person also benefits from it. So, uh, you know, my advice, don't give money to people at uh, stoplights with collecting for a funeral. Uh, the, the one thing that I do... Uh, give money to is the the fire department locally may do something called fill the boot where it, oh, yeah, it, yeah. Where, where it's a campaign to collect for some um, some charity particularly if it's a paid fire uh, you know a taxpayer funded fire department like we have around here yeah uh, oftentimes it's just for the the fire department themselves to fund themselves right but it's really easy to tell that those are authentic because they have large modern pieces of fire equipment parked right there with their <laughs> yeah. lights on it's hard yeah it's hard to borrow a fire truck right right yeah the fire department's not really giving those out no, so no. When, you, when you see that okay that's probably legit right yeah. it's probably actually firefighters doing this this is is probably not yeah so be aware. It's uh, hard, you know, when you see folks at the on the, at the street corner, uh, your heart goes out to them very often. And, right. Uh, so it's hard. I, I understand the impulse to give them some money, but I, I suppose, I mean, would you agree that it's better to just give directly to a, an organization that helps folks? Yeah, I would do that. Or, yeah. you know, my rule is if, if someone looks like they're hungry, I will buy them a meal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I I generally don't give money to people. Okay. Uh, just because I don't, I I have that that always that scam that fear of the scam in the back, and also I don't know. Uh, I, I've talked to people about this, and I've heard people say, you know, you don't if you're going to give somebody money, you don't get to tell them what to do with the money. Right. Which is legit. That's that that's that's, that's my fair. philosophy. Yeah. You know, it, you know, go. I, you know, there's always the theory. Oh, they're just going to spend it on drugs. Well, okay. Uh, but if 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 I want to, you know, I, so I don't know. I, I do give to organizations that 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 help people. Right. Uh, but if if I see someone who's in immediate need for, of food, I I have I have in the past purchased food for people. Okay. Yeah. Cool. What else do you have for us this week? Uh, my other one is not as nice. We haven't talked about <laughs> oh, no. one of these recently, but this is coming from Nick Bohr at uh, WISN in Milwaukee, hmm. and it's a story about a kidnapping scam. Uh, this is a woman who she's only being identified uh, by a pseudonym in here, uh, but she was called on the phone, and it, it was the same story we've heard before, where there is someone screaming in the background, and this woman is yelling, uh, you know, this person yelling in the background is going, Mom, they're hurting me, help Ugh, me. Yeah. Right? Uh, and she goes immediately into panic mode. Now, fortunately, she has enough wherewithal to contact her husband uh, and to uh, to start the process of finding out if her daughter is okay. Because mm-hmm. the way these scams work is they just dial a random number, and it's it's these people putting on this this drama play that's really convincing, right? Uh, and and they're telling you that they have your kid and that they're going to kill your kid mm-hmm. uh, if you don't pay up. So she was actually in the process of going to the bank and had gotten the money out of the bank and was getting ready to do something that they were telling her to just in case they had actually had her daughter. Wow. But that's when her husband contacted her and said, the child is safe. And once she had that verification from her husband, she she knew the jig was up and she told them to go pound sand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, 
the thing about this, and the thing I wanted to, I wanted to uh, to bring up about this is this can happen to anybody at any point in time. Right. Uh, so and and if this happens, and you haven't ever thought to yourself, what would I do if this happened to me? Mm-hmm. You're not going to have a plan immediately. Your your emotions are going to to take over, and your your rational mind is going to shut down. Right. There is there is nothing in the world more terrifying to any parent than the loss or harm coming to a child. Right. We talked about that's why when the school nurse calls, the first thing they say is everything's okay, but right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. That is right. that is exactly right. And I'm right. sure that the I'm sure that the first call from the new school nurse, you know, the 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 nurse that just graduated from nursing school goes in there and she calls and says, "This is so and so from the your child's school." <laughs> Right. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> you right. know, that, right. that's learn, a, that's a lesson quickly. that nurses learn very quickly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, everything's okay. But so I don't know how to tell people how to prepare for this other than the fact that they should know that it's a scam. Mm-hmm. But what do you do when somebody calls and well, says? The thing I can think of is to have, uh, to pre-establish a buddy system. Right. And that buddy could be your spouse. That buddy could be one of your kids could be a friend, doesn't matter. Just someone you trust and the two of you agree that if something like this happens, they're going to be your first call. Right. And they're going to be the one who is of sound mind to be able to try to figure out if there's anything to this. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, to me, that's probably one of the best things you could do here. Someone, someone who's not in that heightened emotional state who can think rationally and help you figure out what exactly what's going on here. One of the big problems with this kind of attack is that it immediately occupies the device you need to reach out to somebody with, mm-hmm. right? So you've got the you've got the the scammer on the phone. They're telling you that they have your kid, right? Right. You can't just put them on hold and call the uh, call your wife or your 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 buddy in this buddy system. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have that number committed to memory. Uh, I made a point about two years ago of memorizing my wife's phone number. This mm. is a phone number she's had for 10 years. Yeah. I didn't know it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's a problem mm-hmm. because what happens if I lose my cell phone and need to contact my wife? Right. Uh, you know, what happens here, here, here's what actually caused it to happen to me was somebody said, I was watching a video on YouTube and somebody said, what if you get arrested? And you're you're being processed. They take all of your possessions, including your cell phone. Mm-hmm. How are you going to call your wife? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I right. don't know the number. <laughs> right. Now I know the number. Now the number's in my head. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess part of this too is that it'd be good to have a cover story for the scammers to right. say, I'm going to put you on hold because I need to call my bank to make right. sure that the money is there. Right. Or to see what I need to do to get the money out of the bank. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because that will likely satisfy them that you're still going by their plan, not your plan. Right. 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 So, you know, if you have something like that ready to go, uh, maybe that would work. But you're right. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Hmm. It is a tough one. I hope it never happens to anybody. And I hope that if they uh, that law enforcement finds the people that do this. Yeah, I really do. You know, one time I was visiting my parents and uh, I, I went to my, my folks, you know, have a, have a condo nearby. And I went and my mom was in the middle of a phone call with someone when I walked in and I could tell she was agitated. Yeah. And I said, Mom, what's going on? And she said, they're saying this and they, I owe them money and it's so-and-so. I said, hang up the phone, Mom. 
But they're saying this. Hang up the phone, mom. Right. <laughs> but they're saying, hang up the phone, mom. Hang up the phone. <laughs> she just, okay. She hung up the phone. I said, they're scammers. Yeah. And they, they didn't, they, of course, they didn't call back. Right. You know, but had I not been there, yeah. she could have gone down the path. Sure. Sure. So sometimes you just got to be lucky. Yes, you exactly. Know. All right. Well, those are our stories this week. We will have links to all of those in the show notes, of course. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Richard from Liverpool. Hmm. You know, Dave, Liverpool needs to be rebranded with something nicer, I think. The name Liverpool, Hmm. never never really a fan. Kind of like, you know— they did with Skaggsville and changing the name to Maple Lawn. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Richard Richard writes, uh, this is like some weird double bluff. Say it's genuine. And it looks like a fish, though. Has spelling mistakes, but keeps reiterating that it's genuine. I think it's genuine. But one doth protest too much? Uh, Dave, go ahead and take it away. Well, in honor of uh, Richard from being from Liverpool, I'll, I'll say this. Security update, please reset your password. Hello, we've been updating our website security system, so please reset your password to complete the security update for your account. You only need to do this once. We previously sent a security update from a different email address, which raised some concerns. At Dark's Corner, we take the security of your data very seriously, so we are resending this email from this address, so you know it's legitimate. We've added a banner to the homepage of our website, so you know this is a genuine request. Once you've reset your password, you can take advantage of all the new website features, including faster loading, improved search, and increased security. Reset my password or visit dartscorner.co.uk. If you have any questions or problems, please contact us using live chat on our website or reply to this email or contact us. So that's the end of it, right? <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. Darts Corner is a site that sells dart supplies. Oh, like dart, like playing darts in a pub? Yes. Okay. Every time I walk by a dartboard, there's some part of me that's uh, that gets childishly giddy about really? it. I love the idea of playing darts. Okay. Um, although every time I do it, I hurt my elbow. <laughs> I think I'm doing it improperly. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, Perhaps I need to take dart lessons. Anyway. Yeah, they're not that heavy. Right. This, <laughs> <laughs> this is a legit email, I think. Huh. Because if you go to the, to the if you look up Darts, uh, Darts Corner online, it gives you the, the same URL. And if you go to that URL, it does in fact say, reset your password here. They've put a banner up on their front page. Huh. Uh, but this is, what I think this is, is an example of how to not notify your customers that they need to uh, reset their password for security reasons. Because Richard is exactly right. This does look like a phishing email. Previously is misspelled in this email. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it reiterates over and over again, trying to, yeah, as Richard puts it, protesting too much. <laughs> uh, this is this is a poorly, poorly worded corporate communication. There's no shortage of those in the world, though. So I don't mean to, to, uh, to uh, rain on, on, Darts Corner, but you know this is just an exa- one example of of probably hundreds of thousands that come out every year. Yeah, uh, but this can be done better. Number one, saying go directly to our website and and click on the change my password link. Yeah, uh, but don't send an email with a link to change your password. That that reeks of phishing. Don't you think it's remarkable that in this day of 
free spell check and grammar check. Yeah. <laughs> in, in so many online tools that this stuff still happens. Yeah. <laughs> right? A, yeah. It's re- it, I, I do find it remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, I was typing something in uh, Gmail recently, mm-hmm. and it was making grammar recommendations to me. Yeah. And Outlook does the same thing. Yeah, they all do. I yeah. mean, you know, what? All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Richard for sending this in. We do appreciate it. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for the show, our email is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. recently had the pleasure of speaking with Martin Rieck. He is the CEO and founder at a company called Resistant AI. And we're talking about both deep and shallow fakes. Here's my conversation with Martin Rieck. So deep fakes are the hard and non-scalable way how to commit fraud. And I'm pretty certain their time will come in the future. But if you look at current fraud, and if you look at current financial crime, deep fakes are a very small minority. We talk about them a lot. Because they are interesting, they are technically exciting, there is something new. But hiding behind that attention is the is a much more important way of shallow fakes. Shallow fakes are automatically produced fakes using traditional means. So these could be thousands of documents produced at scale to impersonate different people. You can buy a database of leaked social security numbers and addresses and other information and you can produce documents using that information. And then you can put pictures of people you actually have working for you on those documents and then proceed with identity theft at scale, which is something that's quite lucrative. And these are the documents we keep encountering on a daily basis. And can you give us some examples of, of how folks are trying to implement this sort of thing, that the types of scams they're trying to pull off? We see this mostly in the onboarding process of neobanks and other fintechs, but increasingly with traditional banks, because digital onboarding is today's standard. So what we see is people opening accounts or robots opening accounts pretending to be people. And these so-called robotic identities are something that's inherently scalable. Because what people haven't realized by turning finance as a human-driven service into something that's purely technological is that by turning a process into code, you open yourself to a whole new category of attacks that go after the weaknesses in the code. But these weaknesses are not network security or system security issues that our cybersecurity colleagues deal with, but these are weaknesses in the process. And sometimes they are amusing. You have people identifying with inflatable dolls. So because if you don't think about all of the possible options in the algorithm, you say, I want to have a look at the ID card, I want to have a look at the person, and I want to match the face. But what if the face is an inflatable object? Because what you thought about was, well, it needs to be a 3D face. Okay, it's a 3D face, but actually it's a doll. And then you think, okay, it needs to be live, but then someone pulls, fakes an ID of a cat. We have seen these. You have seen an ID card with a picture of a cat on it, which, if you are a regulated financial institution, doesn't look very good in your data when someone comes to inspect. Not a good day for the audit, right? (laughs) 
well, at least he remembered that day for the best of her life. So <laughs> that's right, and so does the auditor. So that's fascinating. I mean, and and so what is to be done to protect people against this? How are you detecting these sorts of things and putting mitigations in place? So it's a daily escalation battle because what we see is that the fakes are getting better and better on a daily basis. They used to be quite amusing initially because when you when you had the first generation of OCR working on ID cards, the software was so fragile that it was very happy to read any kind of number. So people just took a post-it note, put it on a stolen ID card with a different name, they changed a bunch of numbers with post-its, and it was accepted. These are the old days. It doesn't... It shouldn't work anymore. It does occasionally, but people are getting better. So now they are producing fakes that are for humans completely undistinguishable. And we actually need to use AI and machine learning to catch those elements. And we need to use smarter and smarter algorithms by day because the opponents against us are improving on a daily basis. So what kinds of things do the artificial intelligence look for? I mean, are there, are there specific tells here that, that the humans miss? Well, I'm wondering whether you want to commit some fraud today <laughs> <laughs> or whether you are just asking. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's, it's a very fair question. <laughs> so the way how we operate is that we don't look for any specific thing because then if I misspoke in this interview, you would know what to do. And mm. we don't definitely want you to become a criminal. You are too smart for that. <laughs> so what, what we do is that we look at conjunction of, of hundreds of parameters. So in the ideal case, we look at everything from what is the ID card? How is it positioned on the table? What are the different angles? What is the table behind it? How is it photographed? To doing analysis of what is actually written on the card through basically understanding the data, understanding the state, the issuing organization, and all those things. And then we build a holistic view. But we also look at the behavior of people or onboarded identities throughout the process. So we see how they interact with uh, the IT environment. We see how they transact after having been onboarded. We know what they do. And by looking at all this range of data, we can make the best decision available. What is your advice for people who think this might be something that they should be concerned about? Well, it depends whether you are a fintech or onboarding manager in a bank, or whether you are an individual who's concerned about their own security and privacy. So for an individual, I would say, don't let your personal data being stolen, which is a very easy thing to say. But it means be very careful to whom you entrust your data and what kind of information are you sharing and how. Because if someone asks you to email your confidential information or a picture of the ID, it can be misused very easily. Some check-in processes in different locations are basically indistinguishable from onboarding in a bank. So what we have seen happening is that people enter the building. The receptionist asks them, oh, can you show me your ID? But the receptionist actually has already opened the application for account opening takes a picture of the person, takes a picture of the ID, passes the identity verification step, and then opens an account in that person's name. That's very simple. We have seen this same operation in a homeless shelter, where you essentially provide all of the nice services, you give new clothes to homeless people, 
But then you also steal all of their identity and all the money they might have had. That's not how you should behave, and you should be very careful when someone asks you to prove your identity. For a bank, you need to be thinking two or three steps ahead. If you are a fintech or if you are a bank, if you're lending money, and these companies are specifically being targeted, obviously, you need to think two or three steps ahead of the attackers. It's not only how did I stop the guy yesterday and I'm not losing too much money last week, but it's how how come how do I make sure that I'm not losing money next month? How do I make sure that in two months I'm not going to go bankrupt because of a fraud that happens over the weekend? The danger of shallow fakes is they can be produced at scale. And this can happen very quickly. If you have a completely automated process, you can actually issue 1,000 loans per hour without knowing that. And if you walk into the bank on Monday morning and you learn that you issued 1,000 mortgages for 1 million each with no houses that actually exist, it might be a small trouble for the bank. Joe, what do you think? Dave, can you imagine the absolute nightmare situation of going through something with an auditor and finding that one of the verification documents for a Know Your Customer requirement is a driver's license that has a picture of a cat on it? <laughs> that, that would probably not be a good day. <laughs> right. I cannot imagine mm-hmm. being the, the employee that has to go through that and just going, oh, well, this is not Right. Right. <laughs> Because I'm pretty sure Mittens here doesn't actually have a driver's <laughs> no, license. No, it seems we've made him a little mistake here. <laughs> right. Small error. Yeah. Uh, shallow fakes, another another term. It's probably a good name, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have cheap fakes, which are um, based on uh, the idea that we just take a video and, and do things to it to make uh, people look like they're drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw that with uh, Pelosi and Trump during the Trump presidency. Right. It right. was— They'll slow things down to make it look like they're slurring their words or, yeah. Yeah. Um, So the the term deepfake comes from the fact that they are created with deep learning, Mm -hmm. which is an AI technique. Yeah. And uh, fake photos can be made with with what are called GANs, which are something adversarial networks, generally general adversarial networks. that's right, yeah. Um, Which is another AI technique, but if you apply GANs to something other than— or to make videos, I think we can still call them deep fakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, everybody understands what they are. So I like the uh, the term shallow fake, even though it may not use deep learning. I mean, they they might be using AI to generate fake uh, documents for or pictures for fake documents, right? Right, right. Uh, but what they're doing is they're attacking the AI that's that's in place already. They're using AI to attack or processes to attack the AI. And they're trying to find weaknesses and vulnerabilities in these existing systems. Which AI? What do you mean? Uh, the AI on the systems, uh, on the verification systems. Oh, I right? see. Uh-huh. So, um, th- th- and when I say they, I mean the bad guys. What the bad right. guys are doing is trying to defeat defeat these AI systems. The systems that look at it as a classifier. Is this a real driver's license? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that nope, that has a picture of a cat. That's not a real driver's <laughs> license. <laughs> right, right. It's a very handsome cat, but a cat nonetheless. Right, that's right. <laughs> And as we know, cats are notoriously bad drivers. <laughs> That's right. Yes, that they is true. Always swerve for the dog. Mm, it's been proven. Yep. So now bad, bad guys are generating these fraudulent documents, and they're u- mostly using automation and, and maybe a little bit of AI for these cards. And now they're doing this at scale. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, 
when you think about making the process of opening an account more difficult, uh, as as a bad guy, you sit there and go, okay, well, this is this is how they've done it. So mm-hmm. I'm going to automate this, and I'm also going to have a bunch of scripts that just generate some synthetic identities, and I'm going to try to overwhelm this system, and one of them will work, and one of them will stick. Right. Uh, or maybe they're not synthetic identities. Maybe I have a database of actual stolen information from people so that the information is more or the uh, attempts are more likely to stick mm-hmm. and to work. And then I'll have some accounts through which I can launder some money. Mm. You know, it. Uh, every time I go to some place, and I would say mostly I'm th- what, I, what I'm thinking of are medical establishments yeah. where they say, can I have your driver's license and your insurance card? And I hand them over. And what's the first thing they do? Scan them. They put them in a scanner. Right. <laughs> it just, it makes me go, ugh, a right. little bit. But, you know, I got <laughs> That happened to me very uh, recently. Yeah. I, I can't remember where it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for the individual, think about who you give your identity to, just like you were just talking about. Right. You know, do I? Yeah, I have not given my social security number to a medical provider in probably 20 years. Okay. They've asked for it, and I've refused. And I said, you know, if that's a deal breaker, we can uh, we can not do business, and I can make a phone call <laughs> right. because you're not supposed to ask me for that if I refuse to give it to you. And the reason I've never given it away is because I've always been afraid that they're going to get targeted in some data breach. Yeah. And then somebody's going to have all the information they need to 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 do whatever they want with you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from a identity theft standpoint. Yeah. Fintech needs to think, uh, financial institutions need to think three moves ahead. I think that's that's a, a, a very good uh, suggestion here for Martin, that, that you really need to be doing your threat modeling and understanding, thinking like a bad guy. Mm. Um, you know, it, you're not a bad guy because you 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 think about how to exploit a system. You're a bad guy when you start exploiting the system and committing fraud. Yeah. So just thinking about how the system could be exploited doesn't make you bad. Sure. Threat model. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting stuff for sure. And again, uh, our thanks to Martin Rehack for joining us. He is the CEO and founder at Resistant AI. We do appreciate him taking the time for us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.